0: Bishop Robert Barron is the Bishop of the Diocese of Winona Rochester in Minnesota. He is the founder of Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. He was our 2017 Erasmus Lecturer. For First Things, he's a prolific author as well, many books. I uh, have in my hand another lovely volume from Word on Fire books. I've said before, we've covered several of them. They, they, they are beautifully produced and, and designed. This one is entitled The Great Story of. Of Israel, election, freedom, holiness. That is our topic today. Welcome again, Bishop Barron. Well, thank
1: you very much, Mark. Good to be on with you. And it's hard to believe it was 2017 that I did the uh, Erasmus lecture. It seems like, I don't know, a couple of years ago, but it's been that long. I
0: know. I know. A lot's happened since then. It has, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in our in our country. So, uh, so here, here we are. We're opening where we should open with Genesis. Which you actually term a type of quote theological poetry. Uh what do you, what do you mean by by that? Well I'm
1: just looking there at the you know opening chapters. And probably the best way, just to avoid I think some pointless debates about, you know, let's say evolution versus creation, or is this an alternate scientific account? It clearly isn't that. I mean, if the physical scientists commence, you know, roughly sixteenth, seventeenth century, the last biblical book is written around the year. 100 A.D. Clearly, the biblical texts are not scientific texts in our sense. So something else is going on, and I think a way to catch that is to refer— Karl Barth referred to them as sagas, um, theological poetry. They're conveying very profound truths about the relationship between God and the world, between the infinite and the finite, between infinite freedom and finite freedom, all of that, but they're doing it in a kind of poetic register. Um, so I think it's just a way to cut the Gordian knot in some ways of those debates that uh, were kind of fruitless, really, and largely missing the point.
0: And poetry, we're 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 granting poetry some kind of truth, of course, right? yeah. A lot of maybe truth. maybe Burrus, you know, yeah 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 not, not our not uh, uh, our, our, you know scientistic well, right, uh, uh,
1: right. That's one of the problems of our time is precisely that kind of scientism that reduces. Um, uh, all knowledge to the scientific form of knowledge, or would say that the only proper bearer of truth is the scientific method, which is obviously absurd. And here I mean poetry in the highest possible sense, the way Homer and, and Shakespeare you know, and, and Robert Frost convey very profound truths about lots of things. So the Bible right. is speaking in distinctively Hebrew, ancient Hebrew poetry, to convey the truth it wants to convey.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I did a uh, recorded a podcast with with Dennis Prager, who yeah. has a book out about Deuteronomy, and he he like, he keeps talking about wisdom, wisdom, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, and contained therein. Now, one of the things you want to highlight in Genesis, in the act of creation, is that what we have here is not an act of violence or dominance of some pre existing thing, but rather a mm-hmm. quote nonviolent act of speech, yeah, which is—what which is, well, is so important about that?
1: It's exceptionally important because it's in contrast to so many of the other myths and legends and stories in the ancient world whereby creation typically happens through a primal act of violence. And it um, conveys a standard interpretation that's present to, the, to, to our day, namely that order comes through um, violence. And the Bible's making this rather extraordinary claim that order is coming not through a primal act of, of conquest or violence, but through a sheerly generous and nonviolent act of speech. And so we see the ground of the sciences there, first of all, that God speaks the world into being. And again, we're, we're conveying this truth in a poetic manner, but a very important truth, that the world, therefore, is imbued with intelligibility. Because it's not dumbly there, it's intelligently there. It's been spoken It's been marked by intelligibility from the beginning. But then secondly, it's not come about as a result of a primal war of conquest, but rather in a nonviolent manner. And so I would link the beginning of the Bible there right to uh, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, and Jesus' great ethical teaching about uh, love even of our enemies and uh, turning the other cheek and the primacy of nonviolence. That's not just a or oh, a fond ethical recommendation—that's a—it's a metaphysical claim in a way being made. Hmm. That's the ethical manner that is in line with the deepest ground of being. So I think that's the, hmm. that's the exceptional importance of those opening moves in Genesis.
0: Well, one uh, another opening move in Genesis is this repetition of good, mm-hmm. right? Uh, of, of judging it good, yeah. looking at now. You know. For, for some people, they would they would say that adding this statement, making it so explicit. I mean, isn't it, isn't it to be assumed? Shouldn't it go without saying it is good? What it, what is the purpose or value of hearing God say?
1: Well, overcoming we all forms good? of dualism and gnosticism and Manichaeism, and you know, even broaden that out uh, types of Platonism that would, you know, valorize the spiritual over the material. That would see uh, creation as a um, as a dichotomous split between two types of being, some good, some bad. The biblical claim, which again, is extraordinary, unique, that that being as such is something good. So Hmm. the the invisible things that God makes, yes, but the visible things as well, even those things that crawl upon the earth, so that the fact that Genesis descends into into the creepy crawlies on the earth, it's that all of that is good. That's an extraordinary philosophical and religious claim that being as such is coterminous with, with the good. Um, yeah. But you know that's a battle that's right to the present day is against these forms of Manichaeism. and it's a very you know, look at Star Wars at the popular level, uh, the, the light side of the forest, the dark side of the forest. But the Bible militates against that view that everything God has made is good,
0: including and especially the body. You know, Bishop Aaron. Young people need to know this world, this universe, this existence is good. You're coming into a good place, not a bad place. Of course there's darkness. Right.
1: Yeah, but see, look at that theme that goes right through the Bible uh, and that comes up into our philosophical tradition, that you can think about good without thinking about evil, but you can't think about evil without thinking about the good. Which is a roundabout way of saying that that good is more ontologically primordial than evil. Evil is, as Augustine saw it, is a privation of the good. And that's why Paul can say, you know, where sin abounds, which indeed it does, but grace abounds the more. And that's not just a hopeful comment, that's a metaphysically realist comment, right? Because sin is a type of evil, therefore it's a privation. And, And therefore, wherever sin abounds, there's something ever greater even greater yeah. which is the primacy of which is the presence of grace and so the bible makes that point over and over and over again and it's massively important
0: when god spots adam they're they're hiding is god angry is he vengeful
1: he's angry at sin so god throughout the bible hates sin he hates what keeps us from being fully alive and the divine anger, which is, is on full display in the Bible, I don't want to soften that for a minute. I, I want to recover it in a way. My generation got very much a you know, nicey-nicey God, and we didn't want to talk ever about God's anger, but that's completely unbiblical. I mean, I would challenge you to read any two pages of the Old Testament and not come across some reference to God's anger, which I would interpret as God's passion to set things right. God hates what is disruptive of his creation, and so he's always about the business of rescuing it. And, and you express that through, through anger. God's angry at sin, um, not at sinners, but he's angry at what sin has done to us. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you know, the format of the book, let me just t- tell our listeners this. We, we've got a running commentary mm-hmm. on, on the stories, the events of, of Genesis and after, uh, well, the great story of Israel uh we we have it overall, and so th- at each critical moment, people could use this book that they 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 have a bible reading on on Sunday. they want to look in and and see what we have. We have your commentary on it. If you take, for instance, the story of Cain and Abel, which you touch upon, you know we are not told why God preferred Abel's gift why Why was his offering? better than Cain's? Should we ponder this? Uh, what, are, what are some of the suppositions over the ages? You, you, you touch upon those.
1: Yeah, and people have speculated, you know, both in the ancient world and up to the, to the present day, um, was it the spirit with which the gift was offered? Was it, you know, the, the attitude of the offerer? Was uh, Cain holding something back that Abel was willing to give? It's not entirely clear. And, you know, that's also typical of the Bible, that when you're dealing with God— you're not in control. And, and that's, if you want to put it this way, a kind of dark side of grace, right? Grace is a free gift. It's a free offer of God's love. Well, that means I, I can't control how and when God uh, relates to me and, and what He does and so on. That remains mysterious. And you know, part mm-hmm. of the game is um, accepting what God offers and not becoming uh, angry and frustrated when things aren't going my way vis-a-vis God. Is no God always has our good in mind? The, the problem we get into is well, but I want it to be on my terms. You know, I, I want it to unfold the way I expect it to. And could that be part of Cain's problem? There is he's unwilling to accept the divine economy, um, hmm. and then falls into this deep resentment, which then gives rise to violence. And that to me is so perceptive. You know, that our our resentment of God the way things are, and why aren't they going my way, and why am I not getting what I want, that that then generates a lot of the um, kind of criminal behavior that we see on the surface of our life. But the deep roots of it are in a sort of cosmic frustration. Um, let God be God, let grace be grace, and accept things on God's terms. I think that's over and over again stressed in the Bible.
0: Gratitude yeah a gift no matter how small a gift right. is gratitude is 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 owed for for that the sacrifice of isaac yeah. uh one of the more powerful perplexing difficult moments in the old testament you make a point about sacrifice there you say that god doesn't really profit from a sacrifice Offered to him, and in a way, it's 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 an expression of something. But you say uh, it, they don't quote accrue to him as a benefit. Of course, rather uh, sacrifice comes back right. to the one who makes the sacrifice. Right. What do you mean here?
1: Yeah, I think it's a crucial point. But it goes right back to the beginning. If the finite world in its entirety has come from God as a free gift, that's what, what creation means well, then it can't possibly add anything to God's being because in its entirety, it's come from God as a gift. So there's nothing in creation, and that includes my own moral achievement. There's nothing in creation that that can add anything to God's being. But see, that's really good news because if it could, then we'd be in some kind of bargaining relationship with God, or he could start manipulating us. God has nothing to gain from us. Thank God, right? (laughs) Right? Therefore, there is a kind of freedom that we should feel in relation to God. So, why sacrifice? Then you could ask. Well, it's not for God's benefit. That's the pagan gods and goddesses. You know, is it you must give me something or else I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do that? But that's not biblical at all. Rather, the our sacrifice breaks against the rock of the divine self sufficiency, and thereby comes back to us. As we make this gesture of love and obedience and thanksgiving to God, it accrues to our benefit, not to God's. It comes back, and that's why it pleases God. You know, that wonderful passage is in the Psalms, you know, when God says, Do you think I, I need these sacrifices? You think I eat and drink this stuff? Come on, I'm not like one of these pagan gods. I own everything in the fields, he says. It all belongs to me already. That's the Creator speaking. But the Mm -hmm. sacrifice is good for you, because as you return something to me in gratitude and thanksgiving, that enhances your being. Now, as a Christian, tie this to the sacrifice of the cross, and we're getting into very deep waters indeed, You know, of what comes back to us. Or think of the holy sacrifice of the Mass, we say. Does God need the Mass? Of course not. God doesn't need anything. The world adds nothing to God's greatness. But do we need the sacrifice of the Mass? Well, yes, and look how it plays out. is we offer to the Father, the crucified Son, but then the crucified Son comes back to us as the communion that we we eat and drink, right? The the sacrifice isn't for God, the Father, it's for us. Mm -hmm. That's biblical logic, and that's on display from the Isaac sacrifice on.
0: You know, you mentioned the pagan... Gods, the biblical logic must have seemed to pagan. I mean, the smartest pagan figures—they must have been puzzled, baffled, yeah. struck. But what is this? Uh, I mean, this god doesn't benefit. The the bar, no bargaining. No, you yeah. a whole different relationship. And uh, you know, you 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 almost want to understand their their inability to, to take it in unless, unless the real conversion takes place, right? Right.
1: And I make reference here to the young Josef Ratzinger when you reread um, Introduction to Christianity, his masterpiece. Young, Ratzinger's only 30-something when he writes that. But there's a section that's very interesting and not a to enough where he says the early church consistently opted for logos over mythos. And his point was they intuited... Interestingly, that ancient philosophy, Logos, was closer to the biblical logic than the logic of paganism. So, mythos, you know, the, all the pagan myths were, were present in the ancient world when Christianity emerged. You could very easily have said, oh, yeah, you know, this is a story like Hercules or it's like, you know, Achilles. And, and the church said, no, it opted for Logos, it, it chose the, the philosophers over the mythologists, and it's exactly the point you were just making, I think, is they recognized the theologic of the Bible was not like the logic of the ancient myths. Uh, It was closer, not identical, but it was closer to the logic of the ancient philosophers, which is why Origen and, and Augustine and company could use the Platonic philosophers, why Aquinas could use Aristotle later, because they saw an affinity with the philosophical tradition, which they did not see with the mythic tradition. One reason why I get very nervous when you go into bookstores today and, oh, let's bring back the ancient gods and goddesses. No, 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 no. I'm glad they're gone. I, I'm glad we dealt with the ancient gods and goddesses. I, I'm with Augustine when you read The City of God. He said, well, look, you want to give them their proper name, they're called demons, the ancient gods. Or <laughs> well, read the stories. Read the stories. They aren't demonic in form, you know?
0: B- Bishop, Bishop Barron, if you read those stories, You don't want the gods to notice you.
1: Right. No, quite
0: right. You you don't want to get get in their their crosshairs. No,
1: quite right. And, And so Ratzinger was dead right about that. The church chose logos over mythos, and it's exactly for the reason that you just said.
0: Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Your take on the story of Joseph uh, as, as we move forward is that, one take, is that if Joseph hadn't been betrayed and imprisoned, if he hadn't been treated uh, the the awful way he was, he would not have become the wise sure. guide yeah. and leader that he did become. Uh, two things: uh, is this just the general wisdom of a little suffering can 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 you know promote? Promoted developing of wisdom, and also is this an anticipation of of the Christian suffering as a blessing?
1: yeah, I think it's it's both uh, you know I, uh, in many ways, that's the greatest story ever told. You know we have Thomas Mann writes what three volumes of this magnificent novel based on the Joseph story. in many ways it's the it's the or story of of Western civilization. I think of the old William Faulkner was asked, you know what what do you read and he said the Bible, mostly the Old Testament. And you think of these stories that have generated such extraordinary insight. But the connection I'm making there is with um, Flannery O'Connor, because that story reminds me of something out of Flannery O'Connor. How often in her story is there someone who's a little cocky, a little self-possessed, a little too confident, and what they need is to be knocked down? And grace comes in her often through wicked people. So not that, oh, some angel from heaven comes. It's often some very wicked person who breaks into their life, does some terrible thing, but it's a terrible grace, right? Well, see, I I see the Joseph story there. Look at young Joseph with his uh, multicolored coat, and he's his father's favorite, and he's having these dreams, and my brothers are going to bow down to me. I mean, he was obnoxious. (laughs) I get how the brothers found him extremely difficult, And if he, at that point in his life, had become a a mighty figure, had become the vizier of Egypt, he'd be a disaster. He'd be like the worst of tyrants. You give them power, but the power is is tied to a deeply dysfunctional personality. Welcome to disaster, right? So what did Joseph need? And this, again, like Flannery O'Connor, what he needed was this, this awful breakthrough of grace, and it was the betrayal by his brothers, it was being thrown into the well. That's an ancient archetypal image of being thrown deep down, right? And then sold into slavery. And then even worse, and it brings it close to our own time, being falsely accused of sexual misconduct, sent to prison for — I mean, it was a horrific, horrific sort of harrowing of, of his life. But at the conclusion of all of that, now he was ready. Now he was ready to assume the position that indeed he had dreamed about, you know that one day mm-hmm. my brothers would come to me and bow down, well, they did, they did, but at that point he was ready to be a leader of generosity and of compassion and so on that, that to me is I mean, one of the many elements of that of that incomparably beautiful story, but that's one yeah. of the spiritual
0: features of it you know the you mentioned that as an earth story of of western civilization, yeah. The other story, the Exodus story, you say that no story has contributed more or fostered more the development of, quote, political consciousness than, than has—in in, in, Western—the Western world than the story of Exodus. What is the political consciousness that comes out of that?
1: Well, I think the—several uh, things. One is freedom from tyranny— and that this is something that God wants; that God is leading His holy people to freedom from tyranny. But I want to tie into what we said a little bit earlier. You know, when Moses says to Pharaoh, "Let my people go," and then he also adds, and we rarely avert to this, he says that they might worship the Lord in the desert. So hmm. it's not freedom as as license or, or sheer liberty. You know, it's freedom for right worship. The story is about the false worship in Egypt. Um, We can walk through all the uh, plagues, by the way, which are interestingly associated with elements worshiped by the ancient Egyptians. And it's God's judgment upon all of those false forms of worship, culminating, mind you, in the worship of Pharaoh himself. So that's typical in the ancient world, that the political leaders became the the object of, of worship no, 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 to all those forms of false worship. Let my people go free that they might worship me in the desert. And so all these motifs of tyranny born of false worship, freedom, which is born of correct worship, culminating not in license but in law. That the the ultimate terminus ad quem, of course, is the Promised Land, but on the way, they stop at Mount Sinai to receive the law. <laughs> you know, so it's a, it's a fantasy to say, oh, freedom's all about license. I do whatever I want. Look at our culture today. I decide everything. I, I decide who I am, what my values are. That's not biblical
0: at all. All right. I, I, I want to lay down a law in all, in all religious writing that one cannot use the phrase let my people go without adding the yes. rest of it.
1: No, I think that's exactly right. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's otherwise, got, got to be. Yeah, that they yeah. might worship me in the desert because the, the freedom is tied to right worship. That, that's an ancient biblical, consistent biblical motif.
0: You know, you note an interesting oddity about the flight that the Israelites take a lot of gold, silver, yeah. and jewels with them. What are we to make of that?
1: Well, that's, that's the, um, the, uh, the... Church Fathers love that motif, of, is they took from the Egyptians the best of their own culture. And it's the, as the Church Fathers read it, the Logos, Christ, is related to all the Logoi in the various cultures. So think of the arts and of science and philosophy and, and all that, even their religions. Can we find elements of truth and beauty and goodness there? And so can we take from these cultures all that's good and right in them and relate them to Christ? That's how they read the, uh, the, uh, the, the taking of the gold and silver and so on from the Egyptians.
0: There is much more uh, discussion of the Ten Commandments of, of slavery uh, in the Bible, many other issues to, to study, but for now the book is The Great Story of Israel, Election, Freedom, Holiness. Bishop Barron, thank you for joining us today. It was a joy to talk to you. God bless you, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.